Hi, welcome to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking with Mitch Taylor, the credit analyst and founder of the Longreach Credit Fund. Uh, This is a fund that lends money to Australian companies uh, at an interest rate and also an income return within that fund. That's around the 14% range. I think you'll find that Mitch is a really intelligent, insightful speaker. I hope you enjoy it. Of course, always please send through your feedback and your suggestions. Uh, really enjoy getting those suggestions. So thank you and please keep them coming. Hope you enjoy. Mitch, welcome Inside the Rope. Perhaps you could kick off and give us a little introduction to yourself, what you do at Longreach and, and a bit about your background. No problem, David. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll start with my background because it, um, it eventually leads to the... Um, long-reach direct lending fund strategy. Um, I've had a career in credit, uh, starting as a graduate with Macquarie Bank uh, back in early 2000. Uh, I joined their uh, business banking division as a grad, um, and I got a really good grounding in making very vanilla bank loans, um, but to cash flow, uh, cash flowing businesses. So not necessarily lending against property, um, business banking had a, a selection of five or six industries that they knew very, very well, and they're happy to lend against the cash flows and the value of those of those businesses. So things like uh, real estate and strata, insurance brokers, um, lawyers, accounting firms. Um, so I had five. My first five years with the with the bank were in, in that uh, in that division. Um, I transferred to the US. Um, spent a little bit under a year uh, in New York with our energy markets division and then um, moved across to Los Angeles when Macquarie acquired a natural gas trading business and I ran the credit function for that natural gas trading business. So that gave me responsibility for a team of credit analysts um, but also exposure to commodity markets uh, and the volatility uh, that's associated with those. So that was sort of 2006, 7, 8. we acquired a much larger business. The business moved to Houston um, and I moved back to New York at that time where I picked up a, a transformational role for me uh, on the uh, distressed credit trading desk. Uh, so I was an analyst on that desk. I was the only, uh, the, the only native, the only Australian sort of long-term Macquarie employee. The rest of them were, were Wall Street guys who'd traded distressed debt for a long time. Um, but it was early 2009 when the desk began trading, which was an amazing time in markets and particularly in distressed credit and in the US. Um, I was responsible for analyzing um, the value of the energy credits that were trading. And not long after um, the, the desk started up, we had incoming inquiry coming from the distressed credit hedge funds who were um, predominantly our clients. Uh, asking us about all the Australian distressed names which were starting to trade. Um, and being the only Australian on the desk, all the heads in the room sort of snapped in my direction. So I, I sort of became US distressed energy credit analyst by day and Aussie distressed credit analyst by, by night. Um, didn't take down two salaries, uh, unfortunately, for the work. Um, but it was... So, you know, all the, all the names, if you cast your mind back, that were on the front page of the AFR through the GFC of 
you know, the first one that really traded that I did a lot of work on was Babcock and Brown International. Um, that spent a ton of time um, working on Alinta um, and then other names as well, like Channel 9, Centro and, uh, and Guns. Um, and the real blessing in that role was, I suppose, exposure to a highly, highly sophisticated set of clients in the distressed credit funds um, and receiving an, an education of sorts from them about how they look at credit from first principles um, was, was worth its weight in gold for me. Um, and also just some, um, some principles that I, I was taught from the guys I was working with on the desk um, was really, really important, including know the rules of your jurisdiction that you're lending in, like really know the law, and also be very, very close with the restructuring lawyers and the insolvency practitioners in your market because you need to know the, uh, know the best operators. Um, and and that, was, that was great and it taught me what I didn't, what I didn't know about credit. Um, to that point, you know, I had almost 10 years of experience behind me when I landed on that desk. Um, but I was really a traditional credit analyst, I think, in terms of looking at, oh, if historical financials are okay, then, then it's a good credit and don't ever write bad credit. And, and if you don't ever write bad credit, you never think about it. And so then I, I stepped into a role where I had three years of dealing with nothing but either defaulted or almost defaulted uh, leveraged loans and, and, uh, and bonds. Um, and so that, that leaves a mark on you in terms of how you, how you think about credit and how you think about loans and that it always comes back to, to first principles. What's the underlying collateral? What's the underlying cash flow of this business? What are your rights as a lender? Who's first ranking? Who's second ranking? And who's unsecured? And I saw the outcomes from, uh, from that enough times to know that I was never going to be a second ranking or an unsecured creditor if I was um, speaking for capital. Um, so that was, um, that was uh, as I said, a pivotal role for me. I moved back to Australia um, in 2011, um, still with Macquarie. I uh, was given a mandate to use Macquarie uh, balance sheet in 2012 uh, in credit. And, um, and I came, I sort of looked around and I didn't have much direction from the bank. And looking at gaps in the market was, was the natural thing to do, right? Um, I'm a big fan of avoiding competition where possible. Um, and it didn't take very long after landing to see that there seemed to be um, a funding gap uh, in our market for loans less than $15 million in size to Australian businesses. And that caught my attention because during my years in, in, in the US, I'd been around and next to loan funds that were set up exclusively to write loans to US businesses. Um, cash flowing businesses, they didn't need property security, they were able to recognise and value the underlying value of, of, of the business that they were lending to. Um, and so that was just a normal uh, fact of life for me. And then to return to, to Australia and see that that didn't exist was the light bulb moment for me. Um, and I assumed then that, well, if there's no loan funds here writing these loans, then I assume that the, the big four banks are, you know, I'd been out of the country for six years, but I knew that the big four banks were dominant and they had an 80% market share. So they, they must be writing loans to this, this segment of the market. Um, but I was pretty quickly disavowed of that, uh, of that assumption um, just by having a number of, of conversations. And I realised that there was an opportunity here to write smaller 
credit what the US would call lower middle market um, sort of borrowers um, on a senior secured, and we can go into detail on what that means, but on a senior secured basis so that you're at the, the top of the capital structure and first in line if anything goes wrong. Um, and return and achieve excess returns. So when I'm talking about excess returns on first ranking uh, senior secured um, debt, I'm talking sort of 12 to 15% interest rates. Um, where for the equivalent, I would argue for the equivalent sort of risk, I was in a competitive and, uh, and mature market in the US. I was seeing those funds generate sort of nine or 10. So there seemed to be an excess return here just due to an absence of competition. Um, so I went to work then uh, trying to spend as much of my time as possible executing a strategy to lend between one and $10 million in the Australian market. I did get pulled into, um, into other larger facilities, which I didn't like as much because you would have to stretch because it was in invariably competitive. But I would find that if I was writing a two, three, four million dollar loan to a credit worthy Australian business, um, that I could almost always command my terms. Um, and as long as I had the capital behind me and the ability to execute and do what I say I could do, um, the conversion rate on those inquiries was really, really high. And I found it really, really satisfying, uh, satisfying work. Um, so that, I took that all the way through till um, mid-2016. Um, it occurred to me that there's a reason why this sort of lending was done in a fund structure in the US rather than by banks. Um, so left, uh, took a little bit of time off and then you know, started about trying to establish a fund to execute exactly that strategy. Uh, for 2016 and 17, I, um, I undertook consulting work about three days a week with Corda Mentha, uh, the investment and advisory firm that's most well known for its restructuring work. Um, but just to, um, to make, the, make the point and I suppose um, live up to it in terms of being really well connected with the insolvency and the restructuring, uh, restructuring community. Uh, so it was uh, joining up with Longreach um, last year, so 2017. Uh, they had independently, uh, which was interesting, come to identify exactly the same market gap. Um, and we found each other uh, and, uh, and worked very hard to, uh, to launch the Longreach Direct Lending Fund that focuses very much on all exclusively on that strategy. So one to $10 million loans to Australian corporate borrowers, senior secured loans always. Um, we, our average loan maturity will be somewhere between 18 and 24 months. Um, we can take property as collateral, but our point of differentiation is we're not property-backed lenders. There are other property-backed loan funds operating in Australia. Um, and for reasons we can get into, um, that's not a focus for us. We prefer to do much more work about in finding businesses that have robust um, recession, almost recession-proof cash flows that invariably requires a lot of work to find and analyze, but we're much, much happier having those sitting in the portfolio than exposure to um, property or commodities, things that are inherently cyclical and we find are far too difficult to, to predict in time. Terrific. That was quite some introduction in the background. <laughs> Thanks. We're, we're almost done. No, but seriously, um, can you give me a little bit of a flavour of the type of companies that you're lending to? Are we talking about listed companies, private companies, family companies, how many employees? Yep. What sort of, you know, what sort of industries are they into? 
Yes, certainly. Um, so for, for what are small and relatively expensive pieces of debt, um, it's surprising how many of these are publicly listed. Uh, I think Australian companies sometimes have a tendency to float a little bit early. Um, maybe it has to do with the difficulty in, in, in obtaining uh, intelligent debt capital in, the, in, the, the, in the, the smaller end of the market. Um, so I would think it'll be somewhere around, this is, this is just forecasting, but about 20% of the portfolio might, to be, might be in the end to ASX listed companies. Mm -hmm. The rest will be to private companies or public unlisted companies. Um, so that's in terms of public and private, that's, that's the mix that we expect and that's what I saw um, in, my, in my previous seat at Macquarie. And the industries that they're in? Yeah, so we will look at everything with the exception of um, oil and gas and mining. I'm just not mm -hmm. fond of lending against something that's underground. Right? And then I know we can get uh, geologists and petroleum engineers to tell me what's there, but then I can find another one to tell me something that's different. But if I can't go and put eyeballs on it personally, um, okay. I prefer to stay away from it. Um, and also there's commodity price risk. So I spent three or four, uh, almost four years in, um, in energy markets. I saw the volatility there. Um, I saw that it's really hard to predict. And I saw that producers are almost always inherently greedy and they don't like locking in prices with hedges um, and lenders do and there's usually, um, usually conflict there. So I see that as a specialised piece of lending that we, don't, that we don't do. As I said, I don't particularly go after property-backed loans. Similar thing due to the cyclicality. Property might go up in Australia forever, I don't know. It might come off 20% next year, but I don't want to be in the business of predicting it because I can't. Um, and, and how many employees do these companies typically yeah. have and what sort of revenue, and are they profitable? Yes, yeah, so they have to be, if there's no positive cash flow coming from this company, then we shouldn't be lending to it. Um, so, you know, employee numbers, um, most of them would have at least 10, um, you know, the largest, it's probably between 10 and 50, it's usually the number of, of employees. Um, the size and the, the name recognition differs quite a lot. The, um, the last loan that we did was a $5 million loan to a private company that owned a, a relatively large um, asset, infrastructure asset, but you would never have heard of it. Um, and the loan I'm looking at right now um, is a publicly listed company with a $95 million market cap uh, that will be no well known to people because it's in the public domain. Mm -hmm. um, now both of them, well the first one took a $5 million loan, the second one's talking about a $5 million loan, first one was priced at 15%, the second one will be um, 12 and a quarter. Yep. And the period for these loans is roughly generally? Yeah, so roughly generally, I can't see myself writing anything longer than a three-year maturity. Mm -hmm. um, the, technically, the fund can go out five years, but I think anything past a three-year loan is silly. Um, we're expecting the, the portfolio to have an a, a average maturity of between 18 and 24 months. But what we do is we set it very much to what we can see. So this, this brings me into structuring these loans. These are, we put a lot of work and a lot of thought into structuring these loans. The one that I did, um, the $5 million loan, uh, it's actually to a recycling company. Um, recycling is in the news a lot because there's a lot of volatility at the moment um, around commodity prices for plastic and glass that those companies used to sell and used to rely on the profits from the sale of those commodities to make for a profitable business. 
business that um, that we're financing has just restruck its um, its contracts uh, for the pickup of um, of curbside recycling. Um, the increase in that contract price was um, was mind-boggling, sort of you know, more than ten times the price. Uh, and that contract runs for 12 months. In addition, recyclers in New South Wales are eligible for a quasi-state government cash flow under the recently introduced container deposit scheme. You can work out with a within 10% margin of error what the cash flows are from that container deposit scheme for any recycler where you have the data. Those two cash flows together for this borrower made it a very profitable company with certainty for the next 12 months. Our loan maturity for that loan is 11 months will be repaid in full. So we lend based on what we can see. The whole idea is that we're not lending because we're credit, like I'm not, I have no interest in the equity story or what the upside is. And I understand that equity investors need management teams to get things right and the payoff from that can be rewarding. We're entirely focused on what can go wrong. And because we're debt, we need to be investing in companies where we don't need the management team to get anything right that isn't already in place. So we lend against executed contracts or highly, highly predictable cash flows. So the recycling one was, uh, was 11 months because we had 12 months of visibility on their cash flows. Um, okay. so, yeah. and, and inside your portfolio, how many of these type of companies and these loans do you expect to have? So we'll be, we will not be a giant fund. We are, we think of ourselves as being capacity constrained, mm -hmm. um, and that's by people. The constraint is the number of skilled people with the sort of credit skills that we're looking for. To do the analysis, that's where all the risk is. Are these people gonna pay the money back? So therefore, whoever's doing the analysis needs to have the skill to work out where they're gonna repay these loans. They do, and they need to have a very solid uh, working understanding of our um, insolvency regime. Yes. Um, not because we, we expect zero defaults in this, in this portfolio but we have um, an almost obsessive level of attention on having a plan for if something does uh, does. So how do you get out? So give capacity. me an example where you've lent in the past and something's gone completely pear-shaped and, and how you've managed that. Yeah, sure thing. So I had a um, $2.6 million loan to an alternative energy company. Um, I was lending against a very specific asset of, the, of, of theirs. And this is what, this is what we do. We, we get really specific and we say, what are we lending against? What's our way out? If the company turns into an outrageous success and they sell themselves for a billion dollars to GE, that's great. But we're, we just need to know that we've got certainty on the part that we're exposed to. So for that company, uh, it was a wave energy um, technology company. I am not an engineer. I had no view on whether the technology was going to work. But what I was very happy about was that I'd lent against the company's R&D refundable tax offset, uh, which I'd had validated by KPMG. Um, and I knew that the ATO had to pay R&D offsets to a company, um, even if that company was in administration or receivership. I didn't just know that because I worked that out. I went to a, um, the lawyer that we used to document the transaction and I got a binding legal opinion from them to say that. So this is, this is what we do before every loan. We think about what's the bulletproof way out. Um, so on that loan, it was a really sad story actually. I was lending to them 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, their demonstration unit while it was being towed from Adelaide um, offshore a couple of hundred kilometres, I think, um, had a, just a, an operational disaster in that it sunk when it was being towed. Uh, 
um, caused an immediate um, and acute liquidity event at the company. Um, the directors appointed an administrator, um, and I, I literally had a, a managing director crying on my shoulder. And then when he was telling me the news, this poor guy's heart was broken, and my mind was immediately thinking, "What's our collateral, and how do we get our money back?" And one of the one of the points I should have made about the the fund and the and the, the loans we're writing, we're not just we don't just have first ranking security, so we're first in line. We have a security interest over all or all or substantially all of the company's assets. That language is really important because in Australia, if you have a charge over all of the company's assets, you have the ability to appoint a receiver over the company. So if a company goes into insolvency, the directors can appoint an administrator that they might like, I might not like them as a secure creditor. If I have an all assets charge, I can appoint a receiver of my choosing. Um, that effectively makes the administrator redundant. Big difference. Big difference. Control, 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 control is vital to us. Yep. We won't go into a loan if we don't have control if something goes wrong. So you got your money back on that lend? Yeah, we did. Um, and we appointed Court and Mentha as the receiver. They did, um, you know, they used who, um, they made all the sensible decisions and we were fully informed um, and were able to, to direct them at times. Uh, we got out via the two things that we were lending against. One, the R&D offset, and two, the insurance policy. And uh, insurances are a key, key credit enhancement that I use. Probably four out of five of the borrowers that I look at, I require as a condition of the loan for them to increase their level of insurance, particularly business interruption insurance. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost getting to the point of over-insurance, but it's, uh, it's to a level that can repay the loan if there's some act of God event. Um, and we go the extra step of naming the fund as the loss payee under the insurance policy. So we actually, when I, when I, talk, about, when I talk about control, I mean control. Okay, so let's think about this opportunity for the average uh, client. Um, so they're, they're effectively investing in a portfolio of loans. Yes. Uh, rough number of loans. Sorry, I'm not sure we answered that one. No, that's okay. Four, so, four um, yeah, so over... This 10, 15, 20, 30? It'll be between 20 and 25 per annum. Between 25 um, so if it grows, if the fund grows to um, you know, our goal of about $400 million, mm -hmm. uh, there will be 100, million, um, excuse me, 100 loans in that, in okay. that book. And um, they get 100 loans, so there's lots of diversification. So if something falls over or you know, you're not expecting any mm -hmm. to fall over, mm -hmm. but if they do and you don't get anything back, you've, you've got that diversification. Um, their money is locked up for how long? 18 months. 18 months and then liquidity after the 18 months is quarterly? Is quarterly with 90 days notice, yes. 90 days notice. And we set the 18 month um, initial lock up to be true to the average maturity of our loans. Yes. So um, the if we've got loans rolling off every 18 months, that matches the, the liquidity profile of the fund is what we're thinking. So Mitch, if you're talking you know, 12% plus income returns mm -hmm. uh, from really well-researched loans and really good detail. Why does the opportunity exist? How long has it existed yep. for? How long do you expect it to exist for? Why aren't others in the market there filling up this void and this opportunity? Yeah, so I had to, um, when we were doing the work to launch the fund, I had to go back and really try and prove it to people based not just on what I was saying, right? had to go and, and provide some third-party validation that Australia is a, is a unique case. And I argue that it is. Um, and it's a unique case because 
I think everything changed and, and based off, off our work and looking at the data going back to 1990 was when the banks had a near-death experience in the early 90s. I think they looked at where they took large losses on some of the really risky loans in the 80s to a, a bond corp or, or um, uh, Skase and, and these sort of high-profile names. And I think they really retreated and said, well, what's the safest thing we can do? It's residential mortgages. And I think they accidentally became residential mortgage writing machines. And I think that that crowded out business lending. Um, and the statistics show, you know, in 1990, our banks lent roughly twice as much to businesses as they did to residential mortgages. Today, that has been flipped entirely on its head. It's twice as much lending to residential mortgages as there is to business. Mm -hmm. Most of the lending to business within that is actually mm -hmm. large loans, right? So banks have highly sophisticated credit teams yep. that so write NAB, loans. NAB would be the biz biggest business bank in Australia, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all sorts of billboards from NAB saying, hey, we're Australia's business bank. Yep. Um, and if you want to borrow 50 or $100 million, absolutely, on a cash flow lend, they'll, they'll look at writing that loan. If you want to borrow two, um, I would suggest that the question you'll get is, that's great. Uh, we're happy to lend to your business. Can we have some property security, please? Yes. Um, so, so there's a lack of skill and confidence underneath that to analyse the risk and take the appropriate position on it. Yes, is my short answer. And to show how far out of whack it's got, today our, our big four banks have exactly 66% of their assets are residential mortgages. And we compare that to the US, where on the same statistic, it's 31% of banks' assets are resi mortgages. In the UK, it's 21%. No other OECD country has any concentration like that. Um, so I think that what's happened and what we're seeing is that um, there's been less and less training of people within banks to do old-fashioned fundamental credit work. Those mm -hmm. that are really good at it live up in institutional bank writing larger facilities. But the, um, the, the, the problem in the... Op or it's a problem for the country, an opportunity for us, uh, is being, there's being a lot of noise made about it by the, um, the Australian Small Business Ombudsman. Um, and she came out with a quote uh, in November last year, so November 2017. Um, and I'll, I'll read it because this is a third party endorsement of, of the opportunity. She said, for businesses with good cash flow and business prospects, but lacking real property holdings that can be mortgaged, Funding is simply unavailable. Like, there's no price for for a debt. A bank won't say, "Oh, we'll charge you a few percent more." It's just that's you, a smart thing to that's do. That's a right? smart thing to do. But I think they're limited. Um, Computer says no. Yeah, and they've just and it's much it's much easier and cheaper, um, and you have to hold less regulatory capital to write a residential mortgage. Um, we've done the maths, and it's it's it costs a bank, or they it doesn't cost them, but they have to set aside approximately double the amount of regulatory capital for a dollar of exposure to uh, a loan to a, to a medium-sized business than it does for a residential mortgage. So um, I think that um, when we see, hey, we're Australia's business bank, what that really means if you dig into it is we'll lend to businesses if you've got property security. I suspect amongst your client base, David, that the, one, that the, the folks that will respond to this to this opportunity and this strategy will be the ones that have built their wealth by building up a business in Australia um, and hopefully exiting at a great price. Because almost undoubtedly, they would have had a frustrating experience in terms of trying to secure debt capital for their, oh, that, for their private business. Very accurate. You know, we're a huge part of 
client base of high net worth individuals in Australia and our experiences those who have created their wealth through through businesses um, and had some sort of liquidity event and this resonates with them very strongly. Yeah. Maybe can I turn it in a slightly different direction and you may be able to give me some guidance on this is how do you think clients and families should think about this asset in their overall asset allocation? You know, they're typically used to thinking about bonds, property, mm-hmm. equities. Um, you know, this is a little bit different in, you know, from my perspective, we're talking about private debt, private debt mm-hmm. to companies or commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you encourage them to think about it? I, I suppose in terms of where it fits in a portfolio, um, that's not, that's not it's me. It's my question. Yeah, that's for you. In terms of the, the characteristics of the funds is that it provides cash yield. Mm-hmm. So, so is income producing income producing every loan that we write is cash pay interest right some of the yes. some of the credit funds you see offshore get a little bit cheeky and they say well we charge a you know, 11% interest rate but only 6% of that is paid in cash and 5% is they try to capitalize on capitalize that. it to the loan balance which we don't like at all so we we only do monthly cash pay interest on each and every one of our loans so that allows us to generate um, cash in the fund, which we distribute in full to unit holders quarterly in arrears. So it's a income, cash income producing um, fund. Um, investors can choose to reinvest that if they wish, but if they want, um, if they want, you know, what we uh, very much expect to be a steady form of Australian dollar yeah. um, cash yield, um, then that's what we're that's what we're hoping yeah. to. Look, to I, I think the way we think about it is this is part of the high yield strategy. Mm. Um, we think that those can aff- that can afford the liquidity trade, mm. i.e., they can afford to lock their money up for eighteen months. Um, it's going to propo- it's going to pay them a real disproportionately high reward for the amount of risk they're taking on, particularly if you can build out a loan portfolio of forty plus of these type of loans, um, so that your diversification within that is giving you a much lower level of risk. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting because a lot of people will talk about the traditional bond portfolio, yeah. which is marked to market every day, yeah. and they're actually getting some capital risk and they're coming through a GFC type period and they're saying, well, hang on, I thought these were all bonds. Why, why is that down 10%? You know, the interest rate expectation and marked market on that security, this is quite a different asset class. Yeah, it is. And, and I spent a long time on a loan and bond trading desk and bonds are usually unsecured too, right? Um, they're usually high-grade issuers, but they're, they're unsecured. So not only is there volatility from interest rates, um, but also um, you know, that price can move around based on your expected recovery. So we've tried to, well, we haven't tried, we have an, uh, an asset class that's really robust and we expect to be uh, uncorrelated to equity markets, property markets. We go out of our way just through our credit selection process to find really boring cash flowing businesses that aren't affected um, by economic activity, particularly not by financial market activity or commodity price activity. Interest rates are interesting because we're, you know, we're a credit vehicle, but um, what, almost all of our loans um, are priced on a fixed, uh, fixed interest rate. I'll front up to a borrower and say, hey, this is a 12.75% loan. It's not bank bills plus. So mm-hmm. if the if the bank bill rate goes up or down, it doesn't have a uh, any effect um, on our um, on our expected yields. 
Excellent. Mitch, thank you very much for your time. That's been a great summary and great insight into the strategy. And uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.